I hope you don't mind it being dark, uh, darker than usual. For some reason, I think Dhamma should be talked about in candlelight and darkness. So I was going to leave it all the way dark, but Brian, help me reconsider. (laughs) You have to try this at home. Just turn the lights out. And turn on a candle, you know, I mean, have a candle, light a candle or two, and read some Dhamma. Piece of paper, it doesn't matter. There's something about uh, reading Dhamma in the dark that uh, our ordinary life gets turned off. And uh, we can, I just think we can hear it better, differently. So before I get started, I need to check and see if there's someone here who would be willing to volunteer to be the practice leader for tomorrow. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. So I want to start out with one of my favorite suttas. The name of the sutta is uh, Kamada's... Lament. And I love this sutta, mostly I think because it reminds me of me, but <laughs> I think it's a great way to start uh, this conversation I want to have about uh, striving. And um, so I need you to get the feel of Kamada's lament. Because Kamada is a uh, deva, and if you know me, Uh, I like reading stories about devas, devas being spirit beings that would come to the Buddha for practice, because for some reason it seems to me that as ordinary uh, human beings struggling with practice seems pretty standard. But I always think of devas as being these beings that have all this superpower, everything in their life is perfect, they shouldn't have any struggle with practice, and yet... They have the same struggles we have. And there's something telling about that, right? So there's no real special trick to all of this. So here is Kamada's lament. Um, Kamada says to the Buddha, So hard it is to do, sir. It's so very hard to do. And the Buddha replies, But still, they do what's hard to do, who steady themselves with virtue. For one pursuing, and the Buddha said, well, it's written as homelessness, but I'm saying this retreat life. So for one pursuing retreat life, contentment arrives and with it joy. So hard to get, sir, this contentment of what you speak, Buddha says. But still, they get what's hard to get, who delight in a tranquil mind. The mind of those both day and night delights in its development. So hard to tame, sir, this mind of which you speak. But still, they tame what's hard to tame, who delight in senses at peace, 
cutting through mortality's net, the practitioners, who Buddha referred to as nobles, the practitioners, Kamada, proceed. So hard it is to go, sir, on this path that's so, that gets so rough. Still, practitioners, Kamada, proceed on paths both rough and hard to take. The uninstructed worldling fall on their heads when the path gets rough. But for practitioners, the path is smooth. For practitioners, smooth out what is rough. This is what we do here. We smooth out what is rough. And the commentator that wrote about this, this is uh, Andrew Olinsky's um, his, uh, translation. I love this. Because the, his, in his commentary, he said that the way this kind of uh, conversation went between this um, spirit and the Buddha is the way, it was a typical way that the Buddha would respond to people. So he would be very compassionate, and yet he was firm. He had a lot of reason in what he was saying, and yet it's so inspiring. And he also noted that the progression that the Buddha was pointing to with Kamada went from uh, virtue to joy, and from this joy tranquility to diligent development, and finally cutting through death. And in a way, those of you that have been on the three-month, you might have noticed that so far. You might have noticed that there was this beginning of just following into the structure itself, and then it moves into a kind of joy and happiness and this tranquility, and now you can see how you have this development of mind that can see and pierce through some habits, even the ones that you don't really want to see you can begin to see that. And you can see that not because you're any more special today than you were when you first came in. It's the unfolding of practice itself. So tonight, I want to talk about something that I struggled with for many, 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 many years, which is striving. I'm a lawyer by trade, you know. I mean, I spent 25 years as a trial lawyer. And the more you strived, the better you were. And the, the, the whole idea of being a trial lawyer is to strive to win. There's no, I was a prosecutor, but if you ask any prosecutor, we want to win. I mean, I think there's this idea that there should be justice and all of that kind of stuff, but don't get it twisted. <laughs> we want to win. <laughs> and, and the defense wants to win. <laughs> so there's a lot of striving to win. And the ego gets a boost when you do. And so striving I was taught it in law school. I did it before law school, which is what got me into law school. And I lived a career that was all about striving. So when I came into this practice, you know, I pretty much figured a couple years 
and I could have this done. I gave myself, <laughs> I gave myself Bhante seven years because it took Buddha six. So I figured, okay, seven. <laughs> and uh, I hate to tell you, but I've been on the path for 30 some years. <laughs> We're still struggling. So I think though, For so many years, I was trapped in striving that by the time I came to understand the the erroneous thing I was doing to my practice and to myself, um, my practice since letting go of striving uh, has changed dramatically. It's very quick when you begin to let go of the striving. In fact, it was here on a three-month that I kind of let go of all of that striving, and uh, it was difficult to do. But I can see more clearly the hindrance that came from all that striving. So I thought, here we are at the beginning of a retreat that's going to be a while So why not talk about what is this striving and see if there's a way that we can begin to gradually let it go. Um, So let's just first think about all this complaining that Kamada's doing, you know? And what is the Buddha pointing to? You can hear, if you think about it, what Bhante was pointing to last night. Kamada is trying to get to some state. He wants to, he's complaining about the practice itself, just doing it. Isn't there a better, easier way we could do this? He's complaining about how do I get this contentment? I'm trying, it's hard. He's complaining about taming the mind. It's hard, the path is hard. And he keeps complaining about that. And what the Buddha is pointing to is something else. So you may not, I may have to post this so you can read it a few times and begin to see. But the Buddha keeps pointing to just being in the present moment. So he keeps pointing, he says, that again and again, um, they steady themselves with virtue. So there's a steadying of virtue. They don't have to be virtuous, but they steady themselves. It's coming back to this right way, this right conduct, right conduct, coming back, coming back, coming back. And the steadying into the present moment, then contentment and joy arrives from that. You don't go getting contentment and joy. You steady yourself with the virtue. Or he says they delight in the present mind, the present moment that's happening here. And in that delighting in the present mind, this development of delight of the mind itself, or the, the delight in the very development of the mind begins to happen. Not because you get a developed mind, but because you are delighting in the present moment with whatever is arising. And there's something about learning how to do that without learning how to be with what is rather than trying to strive to get somewhere. Um, And in that, 
process of proceeding along both rough paths and hard paths, they end up smoothing the path out. And that, this is what we are practicing learning how to do. So the way I'd like to talk about this is with uh, right effort. And so we might give a more in-depth talk on right effort. Um, I'm going to try to point it towards striving, but I'm going to talk about right effort and see what that is and begin to look at it a little bit here. So to begin with, we got to kind of look at this language of English because uh, if you're a practitioner here, the language we use in English is very noun-oriented, very matter-of-fact, very conceptual. And yet, when you start practicing and reading the way that the Buddha talked through his practice, it was very verb-oriented, very moving, shifting, changing. And everything about this practice is about um, uh, like... a. Uh, learning how to do something, learning uh, how to understand something or seeing the changing ways that things unfold and being interested in that. Um, So I looked this word up, uh, effort. And um, it says a conscious exertion of power. That would be me. Conscious exertion of power. That would be uh, Kamada. I'm going to get that contentment of mind if it's the last thing I do. And there's this efforting that we try to get content, this contentment of mind. We know we want our mind to be contented, and we are going to do a conscious exertion of power to make that happen. You know what I'm saying, don't you? <laughs> It does not work. Persistent attempt is okay, but this persistent attempt still points to I'm going to get this contentment of mine. So I know what it is, and I'm going to get that, and I'm going to persistently attempt until I get it. And it still has this uh, sense of um, controlling. Uh, It says effective force. Um, and work done to achieve a particular result. Can you begin to see that if you just hear the word right effort? <laughs> I remember one time I went into an interview with Monte, and I said, I, can't, I don't know what to do here. I mean, I have to do something, don't I? I mean, I can't just sit here and do nothing. So I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. And he said, yes, to worries. Driving is like trying to go to the grocery store in a rocking chair. <laughs> You're moving. Yes, that's true. You are moving. <laughs> but you are not going anywhere. <laughs> I'm just like... Tried my best to see if I could feel into whether I was in a rocking chair or a car. (laughs) So in a way, this effort is what it's like when you're in a rocking chair. There is a 
force, there's an energy. You are doing something and it feels like if I just keep putting my energy into this, eventually it's going to break through because it did once before. So eventually it will work. And somehow that efforting, we get convinced we are doing something. But I think this liberative mind is probably sitting next to us, just like shaking their head like, oh my God, oh my God, you have got to stop. And so I want to see, this is the way that Kamada is trying to talk about this. You can hear it in the way he talks. It's hard. I can't get it. All of this energy around trying to make something happen. And the Buddha is constantly pointing that that is, this is not what we are doing. This is, um, we are looking for something that's far more simpler than getting something. Um, We are looking for an effort that will help us shift our energy from grasping and clinging to something to something that allows for stillness and samadhi to naturally arise. Because stillness and samadhi naturally arises. It will arise if you did nothing. It would take longer, but it will arise. This was the point that I think the Buddha was making. He had his share of striving, You know, he strove, he was striving, I'm sure, when he did his jhana practices. And there's a, there's a energy where it's, you're, you're new in the practice and you're moving towards concentration, absorption, you're striving, I gotta stay with this. And, and even his energy to, to, um, do the, um, ascetic practices, there had to be some striving in that to, Stay with no more than a grain of rice a day. That's, I can't even envision something like that without you having some degree of striving. But when he let go of both of those extremes and he settled on this middle way, when you read in the suttas, what he points to is a naturally arising sort of uh, stillness tranquility. And that naturally arising tranquility stillness means that everyone in this room, when you step out on the path, it's already coming your way. And how it comes your way has a lot to do with how we move through everything. So I want to show you the, the, this kind of right efforting, which can is based more in interest, inspiration in the moment versus this kind of wrong way, wrong effort, uh, which is based more in striving to get a particular result. Um, And I want to point to one more thing before I get into it. Each one of us in this room... So I can give you some pointers here, tell you some things. But the only time it ever really matters is right when you're sitting in your practice. It it matters in some present moment with where you're at 
as to what this whole talk is about because until you start actually practicing with your effort, you won't really understand. Until I had that realization of being in a rocking chair, I never thought of it that way. But when I had that kind of understanding, some of you might know what I mean. You feel like you're sitting every sit, but you're just kind of spinning in a circle here. I'm not really moving forward. I feel like I'm just, there's something happening, but I just feel like I'm in a circle, circling, circling. I've been to the same point before. And that, a realization is important. It's a felt sense, awareness, insight that comes to us because we begin to look at our efforting and see where it's at and see what we're putting in it. So the way that Buddha divided up effort in this kind of right effort, he did it as four parts. And it's a, if you can think of it, it's a, it's a box, it's a framing. And you take the present moment you're in and you frame it in this box. And in this box, you're going to look at one of four things that could be happening. And the first one I always start with, I think it's normally started with prevent the arising, but I always start with abandon arisen unskillfulness because that's when I usually notice something as I'm in the midst of some unskillfulness and that needs to be abandoned. And so in some present moment, you may notice that there's something that's happening here that it does not seem skillful. It doesn't seem skillful because it's just plain or painful. Some thinking, it's just painful. Um, I'm, I'm just, it, it, the whole presentation of the moment itself feels as though this cannot be what I'm stepping into. And so in that moment, you are learning to see that moment as a moment of abandoning that unskillfulness, abandoning this. I can tell you, I don't know what abandoning necessarily is, but I can give you some ideas. Um, it's sort of like I have noticed when I am eating, when I go through the line for the food, it all looks great. And I want some of this, and I want some of this, I want some of this, I want some of this. But then when I start eating it, after a bit, I'm like through with the rest. I've had about as much as I want to eat of lettuce. I don't want any more tomatoes. I've had enough beans. That's it. It looks great when I'm putting it on the plate. But then, after I've eaten enough, and you will notice this, even your body doesn't need as much food as you may start out thinking you need. But you notice that you are no longer interested in that food. You were, but you're not now. And you put it in the compost. It's like you abandon it, you let it go. You're not interested in anymore. So there are some of these thoughts that we get caught up in that we are really not interested anymore. We are just letting it run but we're not really interested. And you can take those thoughts and let them go, abandon them, shift them another way. It's not aversion. 
it's, it's, it's not aversion, like pushing it away. It's not interested. If any of you have ever been around an infant, they don't have much power, do they? But they have one power. They can tell you when they are done with you. And they would just turn this way. And you will come around and say, hey, how are you doing? And they'll turn this way. <laughs> They're like, I am done. I'm no longer interested in you. <laughs> so that lack of interest is something we all have a natural inclination towards feeling. And when you see some of these stories that you have, some of these phrasing, some of these things that you wake up with it, it's always there. You can abandon it. And abandoning it means you shift your attention. So we're going to get to what you shifted to in just a moment. But you shift your attention. You can shift your attention and put your attention on anything you want. You do not have to leave your attention on something that's unskillful. But you have to recognize in the moment that something unskillful is present. And shift your attention from that. And then there's this guarding, uh, preventing the arising of unskillfulness. So along with the abandonment, you want to kind of keep that unskillfulness from arising again. And a lot of this I have found is more like just being in the environment. So when I go on retreats, I follow the schedule. I mean, I treat the retreat like my job. So I get up in the morning, I do my stuff, I come into the hall, and all day I'm sitting and walking and sitting and walking and sitting and walking, and that's it. And I don't go back to my room until it's time to go to bed. Because there's something about this schedule, the the retreat container that lends itself to the abandoning of... um, unskillfulness, preventing or guarding against it. Um, So a lot of the stimulus we have at home, it's not here. If I were at home, I tried to do an at-home retreat by myself, and I spent the bulk of the time watching TV. I I watched Dhamma stuff, but still. I mean, who's going to tell me don't watch TV? I just, I was like, uh, okay. So there's a way in which not which coming here, putting yourself in an environment where the virtue is already set in the container, and we are just keeping the precepts, keeping that virtuous conduct ourselves, that we begin to allow for the preventing the arising of this um, unskillfulness. The no cell phones, the quiet, this taking these precepts and refuges, the schedule itself, the container, all of it. And there is a purpose to this very tight, simple schedule you have. So you get up very early, and it's tight, 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 tight. By the time you get back to your room, you are out. You do not leave a lot of room if you follow the schedule for your mind to wander aimlessly unless you're sitting on the cushion or you're in walking. But this is sort of like the mind can wander, but the schedule is tight enough that eventually even that wanderingness of the mind will settle down on its own.
So at the same time that you are abandoning and preventing the arising of this unskillfulness, you are also cultivating skillfulness that uh, has not arisen. So you're cultivating skillfulness. This is what I think Bonte was pointing to yesterday. You're cultivating this establishment of mindfulness, cultivating metta, cultivating being aware of the present moment, like Dora was saying, bringing the mind and body to the present moment. You're just cultivating that. So if your mind is lost in thought, it's, you know, this kind of uh, negative thinking that we can get lost in, worrying, doubting, and all the hindrances that someone's going to talk about. Your mind can get lost in that. You can abandon it. I'm not interested in that right now. I'm not interested in that. And you can turn your attention to cultivating mindfulness, the establishment of mindfulness, the establishment of metta, all of this present moment qualities, bringing yourself back to the present moment. And then there's this, uh, 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 this, this practice of, uh, of returning, practicing and returning. A couple things I noticed with walking meditation is that I realized that I would struggle when I was sitting to try to get the mind to let something go. I can remember saying, can we just let this go? Can we let it go? Just, okay, no more. Let it go. We're going to relax. Let it go. (laughs) The mind does not let anything go that it is desiring to deal with. I mean, it just keeps building more reason why you should think about this. (laughs) Then I learned something about walking meditation. Because walking meditation, we call it walking, and we're sending a wrong message. Because really, you're just taking a series of steps. You're not walking anywhere. So you walk to the, so you have this path. And I used to, I do my walking in that uh, dining hall. Because I got nice little paths in between the tables. And I'm going to start at the beginning of the table row. And I'm going to walk to the end of the table row. And I tell myself, okay, I'm going to stay with this moment. I'm going to feel everything. Sense into it. Stay here all the way to the end. I get to the end. Was thinking the whole time. But here's the gift of walking that is not the same in city. When you get to the end of the path, you've come to the end. You let the whole thing go. You don't even care. You turn around and you start all over again. And this kind of walking back and forth, walking, get to the end. Was I present? No, doesn't matter. Turn around, (laughs) do it again. Walking get to the end, was I present? No. Okay. Turn around. Begin again. And you are training your mind how to let something go. You can't let go of thinking. that. At least I don't think you can. But the mind can let go of something when it learns how to begin to let go. And the best way to learn how to let go is at the end of a walking path. 
because it's already set. I'm going to walk from here to here. And when I get to here, I don't care what I'm thinking. I'm letting it go. And I'm going to turn around, set this intention, begin again, start again. And in this process of beginning to use the walking as a means of learning how to train the mind to just let go of something in the middle of it, it will learn that. This, this, uh, you're cultivating skillful, uh, this uh, kind of skillfulness that you're cultivating by doing the walking. You're cultivating that skillfulness that the mind will remember how to employ it on its own. And then you'll be in the middle of a sit and all of a sudden the mind will just stop thinking about something. It was there, it was all juicy, and then boom, it's gone. You're back present. There's this awakened moment. You feel like you're right back here. And those moments of just awakening and being right here, you use that for the fourth sort of part of this, the fourth part, as soon as you notice some skillfulness has arisen, then you try to sustain it. Stay right there. I just think sometimes the Buddha's teachings is brilliant and we miss it in our attempts to perfect uh, what we think we're supposed to be. Because what the Buddha is actually saying is, is you don't even have to care how often the mind leaves. Because when the mind is here and you see I have this arisen skillfulness, I'm awake. I don't know where I was, but I'm awake now. Right here is all that really matters. And so you try to stay there. Try to cultivate this sustained attention right here. This is the three C's I got from Bonte's talk last night. This kind of continuity, this constantly uh, returning, and when you notice where you are, staying with that, staying with that, staying with that. And that continuity leads to greater kind of connection, this kind of uh, his coherence with the... um, Concurrence with the object and the knowing, this kind of knowing what you're seeing and observing the object and knowing that you're observing this object, this knowing capacity, staying with that. And then this concentration begins to cultivate and we stay with this present moment. Stay with this present moment. The mind will wander off and we will come back. When we wake up, stay with this present moment. So it's less about doing and more about just being with whatever's arising. Uh, And we begin to sustain our attention on here and now. Meaning that what Kamada's confusion was, was the idea that I need to get to some state of mind. But in truth, what the Buddha was pointing to, I think, is that the practice is more about recognizing in the present moment, is this skillful, is this not skillful? If it's skillful, I'm going to maintain it. Stay right here. Keep with it. If it's not skillful, I'm going to abandon it. And there's this way in which we frame it in this box. And in that, 
we are learning how to move forward, this forward movement that gradually begins to happen. So I want to give you another perspective on this, another one of my uh, stories I like with this Deva uh, and uh, um, Olga Tarana is what I think. I don't know how to pronounce Polly very well, but Olga Tarana. Uh, she is known to be a little arrogant, probably because she's a deva. They all seem very arrogant to me. And since I was such an arrogant practitioner, I figure, yeah, these are the people I should learn from. <laughs> so the Buddha is sitting late at night, very, very dark in Jeddah's Grove, practicing. I don't even know how he can do that, but it's pitch black. I'm sure they didn't have any street lights, so it's just black. And... Uh, this deva comes and lights up the whole area to ask him how he crossed the floods. And the floods is that, that, that kind of way of being. You can see it when you think you got everything steady and all of a sudden something washes us away. Uh, so this, this uh, deva wants to know, how did you across this flood, this, this selfing energy, this, just the whole nature of um, uh, trying to get out of this self and out of this thinking and out of this sort of what you could think of as ordinary understanding. And how do I get to this place where you are, which is stiller? And the 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 commentary the, the commentator that said this I can't I think this was Tanisaro Bhikkhu that wrote this that translated this, and he said that um, she was arrogant, and for a long time I would read this sutta and say I just didn't see it as being arrogant, but now I kind of get it. To come up to the Buddha and say, Sir, uh, what she asked him was, how did you cross the floods? So it's sort of like, I don't really need a whole long discourse. Can you give it to me quick? How do you do that? Just give it to me and I'm on my way. I can do it. And I could see that that's the way I approached the Dhamma. It's sometimes the way we approach it by give me the answer and then I'll go work on it. But it's not really like that. It's a different kind of understanding. So she asked him, Sir, can you tell me how you crossed the floods? And he said, I crossed the floods by not pushing forward and not standing still. So I think he gave her as flippant an answer <laughs> as she asked him. Sort of like, okay, now you go figure that part out. <laughs> so she then says, but how did you cross the floods without pushing forward, without standing still, right? You can see now she's like, okay, but, but how did you do that is what I'm trying to figure out. And now she's a little bit more tame about it, not so arrogant, realizing there's something to this that's beyond just her intellect to figure it out. And he said, when I pushed forward, 
I got entangled. And when I stood still, I sank. So I crossed the floods without pushing forward, without standing still. And I think Chi then understood what he was saying, that he stopped getting entangled in the world and he stopped just doing nothing. And that there's some kind of movement that's happening when, when we don't get entangled and we don't do just nothing. That somehow in that you are gliding forward without pushing your way into something. You don't even know where you're going. So you're gliding through some subtle energy. And yet, that subtle energy, I think, pulls us. So what we are developing here is some other way to move that doesn't require a force of our own will, that we are cultivating this right effort that allows us to move through practice. And there is movement, but it is arising out of understanding and wisdom. It's not arising out of sort of trying to get somewhere. In fact, the movement is the more you are in the present moment. So what you're, if you follow me here, the way this movement is happening is the present moment is constantly changing. It's constantly rising, falling, rising, falling, rising, falling. You can notice it in the breath. It's moving all the time. Our thoughts are moving all the time. Sensations moving. There's all this movement that's happening. And we have ordinary minds that clunk along in nouns of this and that and this and that. And we try to push our way into these nouns when all along present moment is constantly moving, changing, rearranging, shifting. So the more we're able to frame our practice as just right here, this present moment, what is arising? What is passing away? What is happening? If it's unskillful, can we abandon it? Can we turn towards something skillful? Return to something skillful? Can we be aware when something skillful is present, and can we sustain that and move on? And can we stick to the container, the schedule, the environment to help that preventing and guarding of the mind, guarding of the practice in the present moment? And gradually, you start moving, moving, without you doing anything, but you start moving towards this unified mind, Mind gets concentrated, it starts getting connected, and we have the ability then to see the floods, to understand these floods, to begin to see what's actually happening. There's a way I saw this at a retreat a long time ago. I got a yogi job of cleaning the bathrooms 
the women's bathrooms, I was mortified at the idea of having to do this. And I noticed the mind pretty much had those bathrooms outhouses, really, more so than they were about bathrooms. But they were not. They were, it was nice. It was clean. And one day, I was in there. I would spend every day in the bathroom doing my yogi job in the mind. Right? I'm, I don't know I'm in the mind, but I'm in the mind grumbling about having to clean the bathrooms. And I'm stuck in this grumbling energy. And then one day, almost out of the blue, I smelt Windex. Back when we used to use Windex, and it smelled so clean to me. But I smelt this Windex. And I remember this realization of coming into the realization and thought, oh, that's smelly. I spray in the mirror. I'm like, oh, that's Windex, you know? And I looked around the bathroom and I'm thinking, this bathroom is clean because I clean it every day. And I mean, I'm seriously cleaning that bathroom. So I'm realizing that I'm seeing a clean bathroom, that I'm smelling Windex. I could hear myself, the little squeeze of cleaning, right? I could feel the surfaces. I know what I'm doing here. The sense doors, the sensory experience, the felt sense experience of reality, which happens in the present moment. You don't have to do anything to make that happen. Right there was this realization of what was happening. And so I begin to realize, I'm looking, and of course for those of us that are cleaners of the bathroom, we know, we put that little sign outside that says, don't come in here. I'm in here doing my job. Close the door. You're like in this sanctuary of just you and nobody else in a place that you clean. It is completely against what the mind thinks of cleaning bathrooms. The mind will think it is horrid, and yet the actual experience of it is so freeing that I begin to question everything my mind said. I begin to question when the mind is talking and ask myself, what do the eyes have to say about this moment? What do the ears say about this moment? What's actually being heard here? So if I'm sitting in a sit and the mind starts creating all this energy, drama, talking, I'll just open my eyes up. Like, okay, let's see. This is where I'm at. I remember where I'm at. Listen, remember where I'm at. You will begin to realize that the present moment Just whatever's happening, it doesn't really matter what's happening because we're in a container that's pretty much controlled for its safety and its capacity to support you. So you use this present moment container to help you begin to see the very truth of what's actually happening. 
there's way more noise going on in the parturs in your mind than there is actually in the hall. It's really quite quiet. Your mind may be having a lot of noise, but the hall is actually quiet. And so you can actually shift your attention from that noise to the quiet if you just use what the ears already hear. You can begin to see, instead of the imagery of the fantasy, you can begin to open your eyes and see what's actually here. It's very plain, stark, and it keeps you in this much more simplified place. So you're, we're using, we don't have to actually do anything grand to help us know how to be with these four parts. We are using whatever is arising in the present moment. If it's unskillful, that's okay. We're going to recognize it. This is unskillful. You might have to question it. Is it unskillful? I don't know. You have to see. It might be skillful. But if you, if you decide it's unskillful, then you shift, abandon it. See if you can just abandon it. And what will help you abandon it? Whatever's happening right now, eyes, ears, sensory experience, feel your feet on the floor, begin to get a sense of it. The mind might pull you back. That's okay. That's unskillful. We're going to abandon it. And see if there's a way to cultivate this understanding based on constantly coming back to this present moment. Last thing here, when the Buddha kind of framed these um, four, this box of right effort, these four kind of um, ways of moving, um, he started with this refrain, and this is the way he said it. There is the case where a practitioner, he said monk, I'm saying practitioner, generates desire, endeavors, activates, uh, generates desire, endeavors to, activates persistence, upholds, and exerts their intent for the sake of, and it's for the sake of understanding Let me see if I brought it with me. My last sheet. I didn't. It's for the sake of their knowing the arising of or the presence of unskillfulness. So the, or for the sake of abandoning or uh, preventing the arising of unskillfulness. For the sake of cultivating skillful, skillfulness or for the sake of sustaining uh, arisen skillfulness. So what he's saying is, each one of us on our own in any present moment, you are in that moment, your movement occurs with your sort of recognition, determination, your discernment, your looking at this moment and deciding for yourself 
Is this skillful? Is this not skillful? And if it's skillful, can you sustain it? If it's not skillful, can you abandon it? And that kind of discernment is not something that someone tells you, oh, that's skillful, that's not skillful. This is something you discern in the moment. And as you discern it, it's like watching a canoe on the water. It glides. And you're gliding through this movement from virtue all the way into tranquility, concentration. The whole practice unfolds in this gliding way because you are discerning for yourself in any given moment. Is this skillful? Is this not skillful? So I want to end with this... um, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's just a, I think he calls them, uh, it's from Ian McCrory's book. I think he calls them uh, ref, Dharma Reflections. My God, I love this book. And I want to share this one uh, reflection he gives about what it is that I, I think we're doing. Here it is. He says, We sit through the storms of our pain and anguish. We push on into the gale force winds of our own resistance. We strive to untangle the Gordian knots of our karmic inheritance until we faint from exhaustion and finally give up. It's only then, when we can see we can't do it, that some insight and some peace arises. For the more we try, the stronger becomes our enemies. The more we sweat and strive, the deeper we sink into the quicksand of our own craving. We must make an effortless effort. We have all the time in the world, but there's not a minute to lose. To reach the final goal, we must run fast, but never be in a hurry. We can't do it, but it can be done. Let's sit a moment.
Thank you so much for your kind, gentle attention. We will have a little time for walking, and we'll come back here and do a final chanting for the evening. For those of you that want to come and chant a little, you're welcome to come and leave after the chanting. And those of you that want to sit a little longer, you're welcome to stay as long as you want. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.